Hi everyone, this is Lynn Harder and I am in Studio B at WOUB Public Media Center. And I'm joined today by three amazing folks from the Passionworks Studio in Athens, Ohio. Patty Mitchell is founder and executive director of the studio. Susan Deloey is director of operations and Tad is a cottage industry employee and artist with the studio. Patty and Susan are not strangers to the Defining Moments podcast. They were guests in season one. In that episode, we talked about the mission of the studio and how living out that mission fosters a more vibrant and inclusive community life. Today, Tad joins us and we continue the conversation by really discussing cottage industry employment at the studio and the healing potentials of collaborative making. My life is enriched by the presence of each and every one of you mm. and by the presence of the studio. And I'm really honored to have all of you here today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lanny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Patty, let's start with you. Mm. I want to jumpstart by having you talk about Passionworks, transport listeners into the studio it's why, it's where, it's how. All right, it is right uptown Athens, Ohio, right off of Court Street, our main street. Um, when you walk in, my, the goal is that people just have this like, <gasps> what is this place? That's, that's our favorite moment. And um, the light is beautiful, giant flowers are in the ceiling, um, the colors burst, the floor is painted, the walls are gorgeous. Um, it's just this rich sensory of another place and it's basically walking into the dream of what is possible um, if we imagine differently for creating spaces for everyone to be able to come in collaborate and be their best selves I I feel that mm. I love that description of this is sensory overload right when you walk in you know, oddly, you know, if I if uh, describing it abstractly without seeing it, it feels overload. But there's a sense of calm there, mm -hmm. and and I think I you know I think about it a lot because for some people, you know, they have sensory issues and things, but it hasn't seemed to be an issue. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. something because I don't maybe because we've organically made it and we've made it together that um, it just feels like like there's just a source of love all around us. Mm -hmm. That's what it feels like. And I, mm -hmm. so a lot of what we do um, is explainable, and some things are, are beautifully not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're felt. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that's insightful to think about how the studio itself has been co-created by participants right, over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so by design, it is a collaborative, organic, living entity. Right, it's like stepping into the river. You don't step in the same river twice. It's like you you come into the studio. It's there's there's there are different things going on at the table. The walls are different. The store is different. Like there's it's just a constant growth and right. movement. Right. So let's talk about the why. Mm. Why does the studio exist? Well, the spark of the studio, the idea of it, um, really years years ago. <laughs> a little kid I you know I grew up with a brother who was institutionalized and um, I imagined him in a different place and as I grew up and it was very powerful you know any sibling is powerful in your life um, he passed when he was 12 and I was 10 
and I became obsessed with where he had been. And so um, growing up, I volunteered and worked with people with developmental differences and then became really attracted to the concept and the ideas and the places of institutionalization. Um, and the more I saw, the more I thought, why? Why are they dank and dark and you know, can we imagine something different? Would I want to be here? Would I want my brother to be here? And if the answer was yes, it was like, oh, why? What is attracting me? And if the answer was no, how could it be different? And so I always imagined bright, beautiful, colorful spaces with big, giant flowers. I literally imagined what you walk into when you see Passion Works. And so, um, so, at, so through my investigation, so whatever you're interested in, you know, that sort of manifests in your life. Mm -hmm. So here at Ohio University, when I was a student, I had the opportunity to live on ward um, at the Mental Health Center, a psychiatric hospital, the Ridges now, um, in Athens, Ohio. And that experience, the typical culture of the, of the institution was all about control and um, really lacking in stimulation and things to do, um, very heavy with medication. It, w it was in a trend. It was um, late 80s, 86, 87, around there. Um, but the students who were working up there as volunteers, we put on plays, we made art, we did things that um, brought people to life. And mm -hmm. I could mm -hmm. see the difference. Like, who wants to be told what to do? Who wants to be forced into things that they're not interested in doing? Um, and, and so in the studio, we're always finding yes. We're looking mm -hmm. for yes all the time. And we're not a therapy organization. None of us are licensed in um, art therapy or therapeutics in any sense of the word. We're a bunch of artists who continue to look for things that work and want to create the space for ourselves, for us to live our own best lives, and then create the space for people to come in, for our core group of artists who experience developmental differences, to just keep our spidey senses out there and just keep delivering the best space so that people can continue to investigate what interests them and discover their own talents and interests. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, in helping to foster that self-exploration and expression, it scaffolds into engagement with others, connection, interpersonal relationships, cultivating a sense of belonging. Absolutely. Naturally, organically, people are drawn to each other. Um, they're Th that natural collaboration and network and friendship, all of that um, grows within the studio. And the people who have had time to practice, like our core artists in art, help people who come in as volunteers who self-declare as non-creative um, and can't do things. Our artists are there to support the university students and the different professors who come in um, who need that extra love. And, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and I love when those moments happen. They're some of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Susan, I want to bring you into the conversation because the studio, as Patty is describing it, once was housed within um, the Athens County Board of Developmental Disabilities and its sheltered workshop, ATCO. I think for a lot of our listeners, they might be unfamiliar with the history and the nature of sheltered workshops. The studio is now its own 501c3 nonprofit, but it didn't start that way. Can you talk to us about that inception in a sheltered workshop, what that is, and, and where we are now? Yeah, sheltered workshops really came out of institutional culture. So when people started to be supported in community settings, 
they began to be supported in group homes or group groups of people living together. Mm -hmm. And it soon became clear that those people needed something to do during the day. So sheltered workshops were kind of born out of that because it's what people knew then. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. sheltered workshops were basically replications of an institutional setting in different communities. And unfortunately, they manifested that way and stayed that way for many, many years. And it's only now in recent um, years that the federal government and others are taking a look at sheltered workshops and saying, this is not the answer. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. But in typical fashion, they're basically saying it's not the answer, but we're not going to tell you what the answer is. So mm. we're going to tell you you have to shut down your sheltered workshop because we think that they're bad, but we're not going to tell you what to replace it with. Mm. So people now are kind of left scrambling like they were many years ago when institutions closed and people were moved into community settings. It was a mad scramble to figure out what to do with people. Yeah. And now we're, it's the same thing is happening. Interesting. I've yeah. always just thought even the the metaphor of a sheltered workshop, a label for that implies, if even unintended, that you're going to protect, you're going to separate, you're going to shelter individuals with developmental differences. And I think that's counterintuitive to its stated goal of really wanting to to fully um, embrace and integrate individuals in a broader community. Yeah, I think there was um, a, a push um, when I was still working in, in the, within the system of sheltered workshops. There was a push at that time to have people work in community settings, you know, that they wouldn't work in the workshop, but they yeah. would work in the community settings with the support of a job coach or somebody to help them find a job. Um, and what they found was that that push wasn't exactly successful either because then people were isolated from their peers. And we found that the reason that people weren't successful in community employment is because they didn't have access to the people that they had just spent 10 or 15 years with in the sheltered workshop. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's it's been a system that, and I can say this because <laughs> I've worked in the system for years, is it's broken. And one of the things that attracted me to, to PassionWorks was not only the opportunity to work with Patty Mitchell, but also the opportunity to do something different in the twilight of my career mm -hmm. and do something that truly makes a difference for people and that's visible every time I walk in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, <clears throat> that's a fascinating organizational challenge. How do you foster an inclusive community, right? but that doesn't um, disrespect a community of peers, people who are similarly situated in life? How do you do that? And the studio seems to be one answer, one way to revolutionize what, what used to be. Um, yeah, and I, and I always look at the studio as a model, rather, you know, that's, you could, it can be an art studio, but could also be something else. It could be a farm. Yeah, you know, it yeah. could be a farm where people work work at the farm and feed chickens, and it's but it's an integrated, inclusive environment. So it doesn't have to be necessarily an art studio. It that's just what happens to work here, 
and also in a lot of places because Patty and I have traveled all over the all over the country. We say we've been from Las Vegas to upstate New York doing consulting with organizations through our consulting company. And in doing so, we found that this model of art studio is attractive to a lot of places yeah. because it's not, not only is it an opportunity to be together, integrated, it's also an opportunity for expression. So a key part of the creative abundance model that you're talking about that's at the heart of the studio is really responsiveness, right? Responsiveness to the unique interests and talents of individuals, the circumstances, the materials, and the surround? Yes, we do that with not only with our core artists, but the same thing with the people that we employ as staff members to support the artists. Um, people are hired for um, things that they're good at, you know, and we bring people in and we try to channel them into the things that they have the strongest skill set yeah. so that everybody's an asset to the studio, but in a different way. We don't expect, we don't have job descriptions because we expect people to be flexible, you know, and be able to move, but we also expect them to self-identify where they fit best. Mm -hmm. And that can be by t verbally telling us or by their actions. You bet, and that's not static. Their interests might shift and grow because they're exposed to others. And, and they have opportunities to learn more mm -hmm. about themselves and develop those skills. And from each other, absolutely. Yeah, that's beautiful. Tad, I, I would love for you to enter the conversation because I've heard you on numerous occasions talk about how you personally have benefited as what you initially called an uber volunteer for the studio <laughs> and you kind of worked your way into a, a paid position. You also do cottage industry employee work. Um, talk to us about your role at the studio. Well, I think that uh, I, 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 the best way I can put it is that when I started there, I just walked in as a volunteer. I had seen something posted on social media and it seemed like something interesting to do. And I fell in love with it. Just the yeah. fact that everyone was doing something different every single day. And uh, you never really know what to expect. And the beautiful thing about it is I come in one day and I'm stuffing envelopes. And the next day I'm painting someone's car. Uh, it's just, it's, and it's fantastic because every day there's an anticipation when you go in that you never really know what you're gonna be doing that day. There's a, there's a set you know, amount of things that need to be done, but there's mm -hmm. always a sense of excitement because there's always something new happening. And that's what really makes it fun for me. In an article that you co-authored that is published in Health Communication, and for listeners of the podcast, that article is going to be made publicly accessible for them. There will be a link on our Facebook where they can access that. You, along with Susan and Patty and others, including Dr. Joe Bianco, Chuck Kaminsky, kind of reflect on kind of the healing potentials of collaborative making. And I think this is interesting in light of some things that Patty alluded to before, but one of the things that you articulate in that essay is that although the studio didn't intend right, to, to offer a therapeutic outlet, it was therapy for you. Absolutely. Well, it's 
I'm a recovering alcoholic, and quite honestly, about two months into my sobriety is when I discovered Passion Works. And I discovered that keeping my hands busy and having something to do and interacting with different people that I didn't know really made a difference in um, basically passing time. Mm. Because one of the hardest parts about recovery is rediscovering other things that you can do with yourself that you have to replace the time spent, you know, abusing a habit, so to speak. Um, and I just found that, as I say, the variety there, going in there, meeting so many different people with different challenges, uh, it reminded me very much of the fact that my challenge, I wasn't alone in the challenges that I face in my life, and that other people have challenges far more severe, and they're pushing through, and they're tough, and there's no reason why I couldn't be. Um, there's never a sense to me when I go into that studio or do any sort of uh, work with the studio that uh, it, it's not for something good. It's mm -hmm. not actually mm -hmm. accomplishing something. And I think that uh, when I go home at night, I just feel better about myself on a day-to-day -day basis. And that has grown the longer I've been there. Mm -hmm. um, every day I feel like, hey, I'm doing a little bit more to help this world. And I feel better about myself as a person. Uh, that is a one thing that most people who go through recovery have a hard time with, is uh, rediscovering how to love themselves. By doing something in the studio, I'm able to not only nurture my own healing, but I'm helping other people at the same time. And that makes me feel really good. Thank you for sharing that. I really encourage listeners to read um, the, the dialogue that's published in this article um, because you write and now you speak in ways that really illustrate something that if you've been at the studio before, you've kind of witnessed, you've felt it yourself, that when you're in the studio, it's never about what your life challenges are because we all have them. Instead, it's about what are you interested in? What do you want to think about? What do you, where do you want to go in this imaginary, right, creative world? And how can we go there with you, right? It's not talk therapy. It's not, right, we're going to talk about what's going on. It's not therapeutic by design, but because you're allowed to be and to be present and to connect with others and to rediscover things about yourself, that there's a healing component to that. I, I would have to say that what I love about it is that it's not like, for example, a discussion group about your problem. We're not concerned with that there. When you come into that studio, you're concerned with art. It is a great, I don't want to use the word distraction because that's not what it really is. It's mm -hmm. more of a, a pleasure. Hey, I'm going into this place. I have problems in life like everybody else. But guess what? Those problems are not a concern while I'm in the studio. What's a concern in the studio is the art that I'm helping to produce. And the fact that things like, for example, everyone asks me, oh, you made that flower. Or something like, no, I didn't make that flower. We made that flower. Mm -hmm. um, everyone had a part in it. And so I can tell people, hey, eight different people had something to do with that art piece. That gives me a sense of pride. Also, it's emulating the people around me, letting, you know, mm -hmm. letting everyone know that it's appreciated that everything's coming together to work as one. At mm -hmm. the same time, you're still allowed your individual creativity at the same time. The idea being, in my mind, when I go into the studio, I'm, I'm focused on art. I'm not focused on you know, keeping myself from having a beer. I'm not focused on anything else that's bothering me at the time. I'm focused on what I'm doing 
And then, like I say, someone pops in and say, hey, will you paint my car or something? And boom. It just is it's a real morale booster. Uh, there's, I mean, like I say, when I leave the studio, I feel like a better person. I really do. I feel like yeah. I've, I've accomplished something that's benefiting our society and our community, and I think it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Patty, on numerous occasions, I've heard you argue that at the studio, it's art first. Mm-hmm. We start with art. That is a vehicle of connection, of purpose and belonging. Mm-hmm. And then other things evolve, but we start with art. Absolutely. You know, and, and what, when the focus is on art and then the humans are making it, it's focusing on what you can do, what you want to do. And we're not focusing on the deficit of, mm-hmm. you know, what behavior, physical challenge. It's, it's like, how can we get your body to be positioned so you're the most comfortable you can to move that brush around? You know, so we focus on adaptive equipment or you know, this music being a certain way, the light being beautiful. It's all about what we can and want to do. And then when we see that spark in somebody's eye, we do more of that. And we recognize it and we celebrate it. And then um, there's an ease that comes uh, when you, I believe that when each of us is celebrated for who we naturally are opposed to who we wish that you could be. You know, if mm-hmm. I'm, o- <laughs> because it's exhausting, the other. Yeah. And it's just like our, our little souls just, I, I, our little beings, our little spirits, whatever you want to call that, just want to be loved. And, mm-hmm. and so the art is a byproduct of that love. It's evidence, it's a storyboard. Um, and the more we're doing it together, the more absolutely fantastical the work is. It's, it's a, it just really blows my mind each time I go in there mm-hmm. to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a bonus. And it also is, you know, it's like, ooh, what are we going to do now? Like, what is going to come out of us as we see us as a collective? And I love that we're bending the rules in the art world. I love that we're bending the, you know, the expectations and rules within the institutional world. It's like, if you almost describe anything about the studio, it's upside down from what's expected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I think we had a hard time recognizing it until recently, and I think Lynn, you may have said this to us that we're disruptors, and we really are disruptors of the system. You know that that I grew up working in, and we're definitely disruptors of the um, art world because mm-hmm. we don't subscribe to traditional thinking. And, you know, and one of the things that um, I wanted to follow up with Tad, I am also in recovery. And it has been a nine-year journey for me. And one of the things that, that um, with Tad is that we talked about that early on. He was very new in recovery when we first started chatting about it. And <laughs> he was a little shaky, <laughs> you know. And so we spent some time just having conversations about it and, you know, and what works. And I think that the whole concept of connection, purpose, and belonging that we've said for a long time is critical for working with people with developmental differences is critical for working with people that are in recovery. It just makes sense. And, I, and we've been really fortunate to develop a partnership with a women's recovery program here in Athens that 
where we have three people that are in recovery that also work for Passion Works. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've already noticed now that they've become a team and they all work together over at the makerspace, they're much happier. And again, connection, purpose, and belonging. And they know that we need them because they're the first uh, step of the passion flower. They clean the metal and then they put the uh, base coat on it. Hi folks, this is Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking with Patty Mitchell, Susan DeLowey, and Tad Simsel from Passionworks Studio about the healing potentials of collaborative art. You can learn more about their work by going to Facebook and linking to the article published in Health Communication. Also encourage you to check out the studio's website at passionworks.org. Okay, back to the conversation. Again, thank you for sharing um, that life experience. It's something that everyone around this table, whether we're children of those who struggled with addiction or we live in recovery ourselves, um, we move through the world with those experiences. And I think it fundamentally shapes your orientation to others. Um, in listening in listening to all of you, one of the things I'm thinking about is how in talking with many of our medical students at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine who are interested in, for example, opioid use disorder, a fundamental shift in the way that we're thinking about that is trying to thinking about how addiction itself, might be a symptom of a broader problem of disconnection, right? a lack of connection, a lack of purpose, a lack of belonging. Right? If we can reframe that and think about those right, as, as in part giving rise to, to substance use disorder, we're going to make much farther inroads in, into helping people. Yeah, we found a sense of belonging with alcohol, Absolutely. didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> I've noticed that wasn't that hard to do. What was hard to yeah. Liquid courage. Yeah. I'm a lot more shy than I thought I was now that I don't drink anymore. <laughs> I was a Yeah. Quite and the I'm not quite, and I prefer being alone more than I did when I was drinking because when I was drinking I was always seeking connection. You know with yeah. other people. Yeah. I could always find people to drink with, couldn't you? Yeah. 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 That's just a phone call. Right, but once you don't, once you recognize that you have an issue with it, and you have to kind of replace some of those things, yeah, that's where the studio I think has been incredibly helpful for for both of us. I would have to agree with that because you you're in limbo for a little while. Your body's recovering from uh, the abuse that you put yourself through, and then your mind starts to say, well, "Okay, well, what do I fill the voids with? I have all these skills. I used to be a chef. I can. I have skills." But now, because I've damaged my body due to substance abuse, what can I still do that I enjoy, that gives me pleasure, that is a distraction to help me fight my addiction? And uh, artwork is just perfect. It's, I mean, especially because, I mean, ego being a problem, um, when you are in recovery, you don't really like yourself very much. Um, 
the fact that everything is made together there takes away the ego from the whole persona of the art world where everything is like, I'm Joe Schmo, super artist. Uh, it's not like that there. Yeah. We're all doing it together. Yeah. So everyone yeah. can take pride in everything we do. And whatever the nuances of your personal life are, you can get a little break from that when you're making artwork. And that's what's really beautiful about the studio to me is mm -hmm. I can go in there and I can play. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm going to work. I feel like I'm going to play. And I think that's a really cool thing about it. Yeah. Patty, I want to come full circle to something that you shared earlier that flat out you own the fact that you're not therapists. Mm. Not trained to be a therapist. Nope. Don't seek to be a therapist. Sometimes the studio is confused as art therapy. Mm. But what I hear is that you don't need to have therape therapeutic intent and clinical goals right, that guide the art making but just through the presence of being together and exploring and expressing and engaging, there can be healing potentials in that. Well, that's, that's not an accident. I mean, that, you know, that we've been chasing this art making bug and, um, you know, investigation, just the, the curiosity of, of, of creating, but it's like, but it has been a response to what is traditional institutional care. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't ever call us a therapy program, but there has always been an intent for people to live better lives. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's yeah. I think it's all it's intended to be therapeutic, but not in in the traditional sense of therapy. Right. You know, it's it's designed to help people um, navigate the world in a different way. And one of the things that I think that we've noticed at Passionworks and also in the consulting that we've done is that some of, there's often, often what's considered to be behavioral problems with people with developmental disabilities, whether it's aggression or, you know, um, excessive talking or, you know, any number of things that are labeled right. for people that have, not only do they get labeled with a developmental difference, but then they also get labeled with having some kind of behavior that is not acceptable. So one of the things that we've noticed with working with people in these therapeutic settings, see, I said therapeutic, is that those behaviors go away. And sometimes when we go in and we talk to people and we, they, sometimes they give us their most challenging people and they can't believe how they respond. And, the, and we say this and it's very simple, but who doesn't want to do what they want to do? Yeah. That's a Patty Mitchellism, but it's absolutely 100% true. If you're not standing there telling somebody to stuff an envelope put three bolts in a plastic bag and put it in the heat sealer and expecting them to do that for eight to 10 hours a day, or eight, it's not 10 hours a day, eight hours a day, six to eight, more accurate, then you're not, you don't have an expectation that you're putting on somebody and they're just doing what they want to do. What's to have behaviors for? There's nothing to, to get worked up about because you're doing what you want to do. And the jobs you were describing are the typical sort of positions that the core artists at the studio would have had the opportunity to do prior, right, to collaborative art. That's what they were doing. They yeah. were assembling pens. They were putting 
yeah, bolts in bags. They were folding paper to put in envelopes. Um, I once worked in a place where they shredded paper, but they also had people pre-shredding. And I think you were there. I was there. Right. That's right. <laughs> I filmed it. I was, it still haunts me. How it do you was, pre-shed? You shred, you were there. I know. You tear, they, they were having people, <laughs> instead, of just, instead of just dropping the paper into a shredder, people were tearing it in half first. All day long. All day long. Yeah. That was their job, to a tear week, paper in half. Month, all year. To go yeah. into a paper shredder. When a full page would have gone in there just as well. Yeah. Yeah. And they also had simulated work there, remember? Yeah. Where they had people sitting, like, they would have people putting nuts. I think they were caps from um, ketchup and mustard, like that you get at the stadium mm -hmm, that you, mm -hmm. you, know, you squirt on or in a picnic. And so they were sorting those caps and putting them into a plastic bin. And at the end of the day, the staff members would empty the bin right in front of them and then they would know they had to do that again tomorrow, that exact same thing. So it was purposeless, busy work. And what the studio does is, is basically flip that on its ear mm -hmm. and say that everything mm -hmm. you do in here is purposeful. Every mark that you make on a piece of paper is purposeful. You and know, celebrated. And celebrated. And it yeah. may not be that it gets immediately sold in the studio, but it it's going somewhere in the things that we make. It's, mm -hmm. it's going to turn up somewhere, and it's important. <coughs> yeah. What's tragic about that example is that not only is that work that doesn't serve a necessary purpose for our society, it's work that's ill-suited to some individuals, for example, who might have cerebral palsy and have limited manual dexterity in their hands. It's not a good fit. And it's a void of expression. It's a void of the capacity for an individual to enter into that position and be fully present. Well, and what has been so exciting with our consulting is that we'll go into these programs and um, and they're worried. Some some of the staff may be worried. It's like, well, if you have an art studio in our building, nobody's going to want to work. And we say, no, there are people who are going to want to work. They want that paycheck. They're you know, but you will weed out the people who do not, mm. and they will come over to the studio. And wherever we've gone, production has increased by fifty percent in the sheltered in the workshop section of the building. And it makes sense because then staff isn't chasing behaviors. People yeah. aren't being annoyed. It's like, right? Yeah. 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 We have found <laughs> that. And people are just, I mean, we've asked people to track it. You know, what was your productivity level? You know, what percentage were people working at? Yeah. You know, and it would be like in 20 to 30 range. And then we would leave and it would be in the 60 to 70 range. And, and the reason is, is because we removed the people to do, that didn't want to work and have them doing something that they want to do. Different kind and of And so then all of the people that were working were not distracted, you know, they were focused, they were able to do, and they were able to increase their productivity. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Um, positively deviant <gasps> is what Dr. Yes. Arvind Singal would say. <laughs> like deviant from the norm in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. We'll take it. Right. Yeah. We own it. <laughs> Yeah, you really... Deviant isn't necessarily bad. 
it has something to teach us, right? How you can disrupt through that and open up larger possibilities. One person who comes to mind when I think about that is Alexis Reinhardt, mm. who I had the pleasure of doing art alongside for several years uh, prior to the studio becoming its its own 501c3. I've been invited into her house. She loves Smokey Robinson. She does Smokey art. She writes stories about Smokey. And for a long time, she had an individual service plan where the goal was to discourage that. That obsession was seen as a deficit. And what I witnessed in the studio was allowing Alexis to be who she is. And she creates beautiful art that is part of her currency in the world. It's part of how she makes a contribution and connects to others and people are drawn into that, right? Because it's her. Yeah, right. And so thinking of an obsession as a passion, all of a sudden the people around her think differently. So we're not there to squish anybody's joy. Yeah. We're there to say, oh, that is you. I, more of that. And right. then because we've seen it. It's like if you love, you know, hardwood floors. or I mean, literally, like people get a thing that they John love. Deere tractors. John Deere tractors. Ooh, a lot Mascot. of that in Indiana. Right? <laughs> It's like, well, that's, I'm glad you like that. But, you know, could you do anything else other than that? Elephants. How about elephants? I don't want to do elephants. I'm in the NASCAR. It's like, so so we're creating these conflicts and these pushes. Why? Why? You know? And it's like you can study Smokey Robinson your entire adult life and have more to say because you love it. And Alexis Mm -hmm. has done that. She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I love how her stories are oftentimes integrated with the visual imagery and the stories of others. And this tracks back, Tad, to something that you said earlier, that you never claim a piece of art as yours. It's ours. Yeah, This is something that we do together, right? Uh, Alexis's work blends beautifully with... Mm. I noticed, like, for example, when I'm helping to make a flower, for example, a passion flower. I can pick up a sheet of metal and say, oh, Alexis worked on this one. Or I can pick up another one and say, oh, hey, that's Cardin. <laughs> it's one of his houses. Yeah. Um, the art in itself from each person as I've been there longer, I, I can look at a sheet of in metal and I know who did it yep. just by their style and everything like that. And it's just, it makes it even more beautiful in my mind because it's just, okay, Here's this color. Here's a whole thing of uh, an essay about Smokey Robinson. And then here is this beautiful house. And now we're going to make a flower out of it. So right. <laughs> it all just ties together. And it just I just think that's a, an incredible part of it. And it also, the uni- uniqueness of each person is represented regardless if the shape of the material has changed. It doesn't matter. I still feel the love of each person when I look at those flower petals. Mm -hmm. I paint the blocks at the bottom nobody can see. I still decorate them. They don't need to be decorated. I can't help it. It's fun. (laughs) They look nicer. And it's that little bit of extra love, I think, that really what makes our art such a wonderful thing. Tad, I appreciate how you experiment. You drip paint on those wood blocks. Sometimes you dip the blocks in paint. like. You, you're creative in what you do with them. 
it's because there's hundreds of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and after a while, you want to try something new. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's helping me also grow as an artist. For example, when I'm doing things like that, and I've learned this from my coworkers, um, how to see the next color is something I never had as an artist until I started working at Passion Works. Like, okay, what's it going to look like with teal on it? And I can see that now. I could never see that before. Now I'm really learning how to visualize what the finished piece will look like. And just learning things like that at my age, any learning, I'll take it, you know, because it's it's, it's really, it's a fun and it's a challenging thing for me to do. Firmly believe the imagination is a muscle that we need to um, exercise just like we exercise other muscles. Right, because it's fundamental to our capacity to envision otherwise, right? To see something, but to see alternative possibilities, to imagine a diff- imagine that with another color, right? Imagine that with a raccoon with sunglasses that Tina McKee has drawn. And she has. Yes. And she has. <laughs> Several. <Right? laughs> I like, what was the one she had? Oh, a flower playing a guitar. Those are nice. Because who doesn't need that? She sends me pictures right? every day. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. All, at home. Us too, Tad. <laughs> okay, I yeah. figured, as, I figured yep. as much. We all get them. We all yeah. get them. Yeah, um, in much. fact, Susan, remind us what Tina's, her first book, um, her illustrated book has been published. Yeah, the, the Adventures of Foxy Loxy and Friends is an illustrated book by Tina McKee, one of the PassionWorks core artists, and her mother, who helped with some of the... Um, some of the writing and some of the illustrations. Mm. So it's a collaboration between Tina and her mother, and it's available at the studio or on passionworks.org. Fantastic. I have a signed copy, and I'm looking forward to her next book. Um, but what a shout-out um, to to Tina, but really to, to the artists at the studio who are discovering, sharing their interests and their talents. Doesn't always happen in the studio itself, the studio also has a cottage industry platform. And I want to talk about that because that is included in the article. And I think it's become incredibly important as we've moved through COVID. I think it will continue to open up possibilities. So Susan, um, can you talk to us about what cottage industry employment is and why it's important? Cottage industry employment is, in a nutshell, people working from home. And what we've done with cottage industry employment at PassionWorks is matched people in the community with things that they like to do. We have um, two people that do sewing for us. So one makes aprons and reversible handbags. Another one makes potholders. Then, and that's how Tad got started with us, too, by doing cottage industry employment. He painted blocks and makes stamens, and he still does that. So he has his hours in the studio where he's working on assembly of things, but when he's at home, he's doing some of the cottage industry work. So he's a a hybrid. Mm, Yeah. mm -hmm, And then we mm -hmm. also have, we added another person this year who makes candles for us. She makes candles from home. Okay. Yeah. And it's just been a really effective way for us to expand our, our production capabilities, but also to expand our reach to other artists in the community. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't tax the physical footprint of right. the studio. That's exactly right. And that's we have that arrangement 
with the cottage industry workers, and it's also why we have an arrangement with the uh, Rural Actions Makerspace here in Athens, which houses three of our employees that do mm -hmm. metal cleaning because we don't really have the space or the capacity at the studio to do it. And that's been a very good partnership. So those two things combined have been critical to us being able to produce um, artwork that we're able to sell because selling is our currency. I mean, it's how we sustain the studio. Yeah. The largest portion of our income comes from uh, the sale of artwork. So it's a social enterprise model. Absolutely. Built within a nonprofit. Yep. So it, the funding streams really meet the mission of that nonprofit. So, Tad, in the article, you, you write about, and in our conversations, you've talked about how part of the beauty of cottage industry work from your perspective is that sometimes being in the safety of your own home, being able to work with your dog, right, and on your own time frame, that there's some comfort and freedom in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if, well, for example, I love Star Trek reruns. So if I want to watch a Star Trek rerun and make statements, I can. And yeah. there's no one there to judge or wonder if I'm working hard enough or anything like that. Uh, a lot of the cottage industry work is also, it's not by the hour, it's by the piece. Mm -hmm. um, that also inspires me because, one, if I want to make money, I have to get it ton, done at a yeah. certain time. But number two, I don't have to stress about it. I don't have to freak out that at this particular time I have to be somewhere. This particular time I can do what I have to do and then I can sit down and get things done. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it allows me my own pace. And I think as I get older, that's kind of important. I mean, I have a disability. I don't walk as well as I used to. Uh, it allows me the freedom to be able to work in a small environment that I know is safe and I know is comfortable without fear for, you know, getting hurt or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, and like I say, if I want to watch the boob tube or whatever and just have some fun, I can. I can play tug of war with my dog and I can paint blocks at the same time, more or less, you know, because he's bothering me for it anyway. <laughs> but that, it, it is a really nice, comfortable feeling. I'm not um, sure we knew that, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, I said that out loud. I'm sorry. But, um, it's good. It's good. <laughs> no, it's, it's being able to work at your own pace. And like you said, in a pandemic, um, isolation, though it's not fun, sometimes it's absolutely necessary. And if you have something to do, it, it passes a lot easier. Uh, that is, yeah. I think, very important a part of it is, you know, okay, here we are. We're in a situation where we can't all be together. What can we do to keep ourselves busy and still stay connected? Because there's communication. There's people delivering things. Um, there's still that going on, so you don't feel like you're completely isolated and alone. Um, yeah, one of the compelling things I find about the article is how you and Susan and, and Chuck talk about how, although you might be a cottage industry employee in your home, there's a specific intent to foster connection. Yeah. You still know that the work that you're doing is collaboratively connected to others. You can still uh, connect with them virtually do art nights via Zoom. Through the mobile art project van of the studio, people can bring materials to and from people in their homes. So it provides you that space of freedom, but you're, there's an intent to still be connected. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, for example, I paint the bases for our main thing, the passion flowers. Yeah. Without them, no one else can get anything done. Yeah. So I know when I send those out, boom, it's going off to become something beautiful 
thanks to all these other people who are doing the same thing, but they're just doing a different part of it. It's pieces of a puzzle. That's kind of how I look at what we do. For yeah. example, like you were saying, the makerspace people painting the metal. Um, yeah. That is necessary or nothing else will happen. Yeah. Same thing with the blocks. We are all meeting together at some point and then you see the finished product. And that's what's so nice about it. We might not all be together because we're you know, dealing with pandemic and stuff, but we are all still working together. Yeah. It, it, you can still feel it, you know? You can still feel that you are a part of something when you're doing that kind of stuff. And that's what's really, really nice about it. It's part of a creative economy, a collaborative economy, but it's also part of a green economy. And we haven't talked about that yet, but that's equally important. So let's, let's talk for a bit about how there's a real commitment at the studio and as part of the creative abundance model that is at its heart to upcycle materials in our surround that might otherwise be discarded and give those materials a second or a third life. Yeah, it's really hip and trendy, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's important. It's important. No, but it's, it's just kind of funny because um, 25 years ago, we did started because we didn't have a budget or any money. Yeah. And we did it at a necessity. And also, we're, you know, we're in Appalachia. You use what you have. You yeah. make your own fun. You know, like we're, you know, we're, you know, just there's a scrappy culture here of just like, you know, and literally we use scraps to make our artwork because we literally did not have a budget for materials that to speak of. And so we kept doing it, and it's become our culture. Yeah. And and as we've been doing this, it's also become recognized as important and thoughtful, and you know, and and it's like it's like yeah, yeah. It, and and so we do take it seriously. We don't want to waste. We want to have the example of that we're rich with things if we see them as as useful. If we see we're we're surrounded by brilliance if we see people as beautiful and imaginative and productive who were discarded before you know yeah. so it's it's all of that and the materials are the metaphor as we live our 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 lives and and now you know our product line is handmade upcycled repurposed rethought and um and the more we do it the better our profit the higher our sales and um and it's like, so it's a good business. It's not, it's a nice thing. It's a good thing to do, but it's also a great business model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, when we came up with what are we going to name our consulting company? You know, we looked at, we came up with creative abundance because creative is, as you said, the creative economy, you know, we kind of make our own, make our own money, make our own way. And then the other piece of it was the abundance model that everything that we need to do this already exists. And we don't need to create something new in order for it to be successful. We just need to repurpose what is existing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I like is that we, we're, we, what may have started out of necessity is now done with intention. So we're working, we're using materials with intention of creating upcycle. Okay, so we're not, it started because there was no budget, but now we're seeking out materials that are uh, going to end up in the uh, um, landfill. Landfill. Thank you, Patty. I'm here for you. Yeah, we share a brain. <laughs> <laughs> but Susan, I would also say that it naturally connects us to, to place. Yes. So, you know, we work with items from 
do Mc, Stuart McDonald Banjo Factory here in town. Yeah. Um, the newspaper printing places from the Athens Messenger, Louisville oh. Slugger Bat Nubs. It's like we, the things that are of our, you know, Louisville, we, is not, we're not in Louisville, but it's that our story carries to Louisville. But whatever we make, where we are with the things that exist around us, connect us to our place, and the story broadens because we get to bring in other people and um, efforts mm -hmm. into it. Yeah, well, our fabric comes from a, a place in Indiana, <clears throat> which I'm sure wouldn't want to be named, because they literally take bolts of fabric and they were throwing them into a huge dumpster. And Patty and I took a road trip over there with the van and filled it from floor to ceiling with rolls and rolls and rolls of fabric that would have been in the in the um, landfill had we not done that. And one of the things that we do, I keep bringing up the consulting, but we try when we're consulting, we try to find whatever's in that community. And so that's where that one came out of is like what's in this community that yeah. you have rich resources that, you know, is constantly available to you. And at this particular location, it was the fabric. And so now they make um, wreaths using fabric and using fabric from that same company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, and, and other places we were, when we were in North Carolina, they, it was um, thread, thread um, cones from a, um, a textile factory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened to those thread things? We turned them into pieces and parts of some flying creatures that we were making. They made excellent noses. And it was so funny because people that were in this, that we were working with were like, oh, I don't know that anybody's going to like that. Well, the people that were from the factory came over and said, I'll take all three of those. How much? How much? Because we're going to hang them in our break room. Because yeah. it was a byproduct of their manufacturing. So, yeah. I mean, and that's what we're constantly looking for in any community that we're in. Here, we're able to use the newspaper pr uh, plates from the um, Athens uh, Messenger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I can't talk. Just, Patty, fill in any <laughs> sense that you need to. I will say one thing on that regard as far as the <laughs> environmental side of things. Bail us out, <laughs> When I mentioned to you the pride that I take and when someone asks me about a piece and I say, hey, at least eight people worked on that, mm -hmm. another thing that gives me a real big sense of pride about it is that we are making an effort to do things right environmentally in yeah. our community. It really makes a difference that when we are presenting someone a product, it, it, there is not a wasteful thing really going on there. It is an attempt to use things in your own community, reuse them, and make them better. It's, that makes me feel better about working there as well. I've worked places that I won't name, that yeah. uh, everything gets thrown in the dumpster, and it's just, it just makes me want to cry. So it's really nice to see that the effort's being made at the studio to not do that. Yeah. It really um, moves us from a linear economy where something is inserted right into the consumptive cycle, it's used, it's perceived life cycle is done, it's discarded. A circular economy keeps that, right, moving and flowing and re-envisions it, gives it a second or a third life. And your efforts at doing that and doing that beautifully artistically have drawn the attention of the Sugar Bush Foundation, mm. received financial support right, to expand the creation, production, and distribution of art that's made from upcycled materials. And they, the materials have a story, and that story shifts. It, it, 
becomes something else. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing. It is, you know, and it's just, it's so all so organic. And one of the things that people often say, you know, and they're like, oh, what if somebody didn't want to collaborate? What happens to them within mm -hmm. the studio? Then they don't. They work their own. They work their own magic, and they do independent projects, and it's okay. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. You know, it's it's none of what we do is a all or nothing situation. Yeah. You know, it's it's a constant exploration, and people get to do what they're comfortable with, mm -hmm. and you know, it's a responsive model, and we're going about. But but it's I just wanted to make sure that was said out loud because that's often like uh, we're forcing people to collaborate. Yeah. And what I think you said, Ted, uh, Ted too, is that it's counterintuitive, but be through the creative process, the individual voices are amplified, which um, has just, it's really interesting to watch that, I think, in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up, what are your closing thoughts or ideas that you'd like to share with listeners about your experiences with the studio? I would have to say, when you look at something that you're about to throw away, look at it like it might be a reindeer nose. Look at it might be a part of a new Jeep. I mean, everything to an artist, and I really relate with what Patty said on this. When you stare at something, it's not a plastic bottle. It could be anything. I mean, it could be part of a yacht. It could be part of a mansion. It's all a matter of what you want to make out of that thing. Artists don't see things for what they are. They're, they see them for what they could be. Um, I think that's really what I've learned at the studio. That's, that is one of the most wonderful things about it for me. Transcends any art studio. It's a fundamental skill for living well. If you're in sales and marketing or human resource management, your capacity to see what could be in the midst of what is. Yeah, and I, I think my closing comments would be that that relates to people as well. Seeing what's possible is, is the most important thing. Looking at people that may have you know, some challenges or some differences from what we perceive as, as to being quote-unquote normal, um, looking at them and saying, what can they do? What can they offer? And given the right opportunity, everybody will thrive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and, and with that, it's having more artists and more spaces to be able to respond and think differently. You know, we often, you know... At, for whatever reason, artists are often pushed to the side. It's like, well, let's have let's have them more at the table um, for talking about what's possible and imagining what's not there yet. And I, you know, I I, I would love for the studio to be the example of that. And um, and we're oh wait, we're we just want to share what we've learned. That's we're in the business of sharing um, this model with the world. Mm -hmm. If I had my leadership time to do all over again <clears throat> as a leader of a nonprofit, I think I would have only hired artists because they're creative thinkers and problem solvers. And they're, that, they're the people that will, that will change the world. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, um, in a conversation with Patty, I shared a, a quote of mine from an author, Kenneth Burke, whose work really inspires the way I think about 
what narratives do for us in this world. He argued, though the materials of experience are established, we are poetic in our rearrangement of them. We can tell different stories. We can create new worlds. We can ask different questions. I also shared that with her as as a side note and just to keep it real here. Um, as I was playing a song by Harry Chapin, who is the grandson of Kenneth Burke. And what was the name of the song, Patty? R- Roses are red. Flowers are red. Flowers are red. Flowers are red. And it's a, you know, is a hippie song created in the late 60s, early 70s, and really about um, normalization that happens in school systems and the tragic loss of creativity in that process. I also danced for her. She did. Um, <laughs> so she got to see my dance moves to this. But Does she have moves? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I still have some. <laughs> I still have some. But, um, you know, it for me, what I try to encourage students in my classrooms to think about is, is bring in an object, narrate right, it's intended life, it's intended use, and now create a different life. What else could it be used for? And I think the more that we start to integrate that mindset, this is not just about what happens in an art studio, this is how we live, this is how we relate with one another. And and we live um, with the resources in our surround. So, um, thank you. Mm. You're Every single one of you inspire me. I consider you rock stars. Um, and I hope our listeners will check out the studio's website. If you're in this region, come visit the studio. And by all means, please read the article that is published in Health Communication and accompanies this podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. This is Lynn Harder. We've been talking with Patty Mitchell, Susan DeLowey, and Tad Simsel from Passionworks Studio. And we've been talking about um, the creative potential of people collaborating, imagining together, and how oftentimes that allows us to heal. That allows us to, to become more in relation to others. Defining Moments is a podcast that's produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. We encourage you to check out our Facebook page where we have an article that accompanies this podcast. As always, please go in peace and love one another. Thank you. Thank you.